You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jane. Well, as Coy mentioned before, my name's Lee, and I'm one of the local uh, lay pastors here. This is about the third or fourth series I've been asked to finish. Um, so I'm not sure whether I have the gift of wrap-up or the gift of benediction or the gift of finishing or just what it is, but uh, here I am and uh, finishing off uh, the coisms of the last two weeks and uh, sharing from um, the book of Titus. So this is an exciting little book. Somebody said to me this morning after the service, wow, this little book really does pack a punch, doesn't it? And uh, it's well worth reading just to uh, keep familiar with the gospel. Let's trust God together in prayer, shall we? Father, it's a great privilege to be able to open your word and to share in its truth. We thank you especially for the Lord Jesus who came and gave us not just proof, a truth on a page, but truth in person, in his own person. He communicated truth but he lived truth. We pray, Father, as a result of looking at your word tonight or this afternoon, you'll help us to live truth, and not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake, because of all that he's done for us. We ask us in his dear name. Amen. I'm going to date myself for a moment. Um, Back in the 80s, uh, there was a fad called Fun Runs that got going. It was Australia-wide. I was in Queensland and we got involved in organising fun runs and also participating in fun runs. They usually went from somewhere between 10 and 30 uh, kilometres. So we organised one in the local town. It was our way of actually doing good to the community and helping to uh, provide some funds for a local home for the age to get it off the ground and get it up and running. We felt as a church we needed to be out there in the eyes of the community doing stuff and uh, engaging people. But then the fad caught on more and more strongly and uh, the council, the Brisbane City Council, decided to actually have a special fun run uh, in connection with the opening of the Gateway Bridge. The Gateway Bridge goes over the Brisbane River. It was a new bridge. And so they said, let's have a fun run uh, to get it going and let's call it the Robert D. Costello Fun Run. Robert D. Costello was the uh, world champion, Australian world champion marathon runner. 
and he won, in 1982, he won the marathon at the Brisbane Commonwealth Games. It was a tenacious run. He came um, uh, came from behind and uh, just, just did magnificent, beat a couple of the Africans. And uh, so they got this idea of running um, this uh, fun run and uh, everybody was given a shirt. Run for Deke. Deke was his popular name. He was called Deke. He was Robert D. Costello, but they called him Deke. And so everybody, all his supporters called him Deke. But uh, all his competitors, they called him Tree. They called him Tree because he had big thighs and because he had a calm disposition. Um, but there was Deke, and Deke was going to be present at the fun run. So my two oldest children and I got on the run. We're running over the bridge, and my son says to me, today's the day, Dad. I knew exactly what he meant. He said, today's the day I'm going to beat you over the finishing line. Ask me later as to what happens. But we, we ran, and we enjoyed the run, but it was most disappointing from the point of view that Robert D. Costello didn't appear. He didn't turn up. He sent his dad along instead. We found it extremely disappointing. We were running for Deke, and Deke didn't show. This passage um, in Titus that we're looking at today uh, follows on from what Coy emphasised a number of weeks ago in regard to chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God appeared for the salvation of all men. Now, that means that Jesus has appeared. Jesus has come. He's been true to his promise. We sung about that in one of the songs earlier uh, in the service tonight. Um, that Jesus has come and he's appeared in person. He's come and appeared full of grace and full of truth for salvation. And then it goes on uh, in chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared. So it wasn't just grace, wasn't just truth, but it was the loving kindness and it was the goodness of God that Jesus showed and evidence to us. And it was all with a view to salvation. So what I'm saying to you is that the appearance of Jesus was according to promise. Robert D. Costello failed to turn up and didn't fulfil the promise that was made. So tonight we're going to look at, um, I call it tonight, but it's this afternoon really, um, we're going to look together at what it is that uh, it is to insist on great truths of the gospel that are essential in making us different and uh, making a difference in the world in which we live. It'd be wonderful to have a screen here to actually put things up on the screen, but let me just tell you the direction of the message tonight. We're going to look at three things together, uh, all for the sake of uh, the Lord our Saviour. The first thing we're going to look at is we're going to keep, uh, we need to keep emphasising the grand truths of the gospel out of verse 8. And then we're going to look together at to keep clear of emphasising foolish and distracting side issues from verse 9. And then... We're going to finish the time together looking together at keeping praying for our pastors to have tender hearts and tough hides. The first thing that Paul says to, to Titus that he wants him to 
appreciate is he needs to keep emphasizing the grand truths of Christ's gospel. And he says that from the point of view of that it's worth trusting in and worth knowing the truth of the gospel and, and continuing to have it at the forefront of one's thinking and living. He says to us here in um, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. He's saying what I'm speaking to you about, what I've been writing to you about, uh, Titus, is trustworthy. You can count on it. You can hang your head on it. You can stake your life on it. It is true. It is a truism. Paul is saying he is truthing the truth. He's truthing the truth to Titus so that Titus might truth the truth to others. It's, it's quite interesting that when you go back to the Greek language, you see the little word for truth, uh, pistos, um, little word for trustworthy, I should say, pistof, is actually closely linked with the word for faith, which is pistias. So that means these two words come from the same root. That means what is true and what is trustworthy is worth putting your faith in. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying to Titus. One of the great things I've really appreciated in the time in the five years I think I've been with City on the Hill, City on the Hill West, is two features. One is the centrality of the preach word. We proclaim the truth centrally in our worship services. Our pulpits or lecterns are central. That says something. In other words, the focus is on the word of God, the power and truth of the word of God. The other thing is the amount of time that is given to the proclamation of the truth of God. That you look at our orders of service and you see that our standing feature in our worship is the fact of the preaching of the word. They are things not to take for granted. The pulpit shouldn't be to one side. It should be central. It says something. It says something to us as people that we are given to the word of God. The emphasis is upon the truth of God's gospel. We can be super correct in regard to the truth of God's gospel. We can actually write it down and write it up. We can put it on our web pages. We can put it in our constitutions. We can put it in our, um, our welcome packs to actually indicate what we believe as a congregation. But that can all be quite, quite wooden, can't it? You know, it can be just words on a page. When Paul is talking about truth here and the importance and value of truth uh, to Titus, he's telling us this truth is something which is realised in our lives, but not just realised, not just realised in the mind, not just a, a mind understanding, but it becomes real in the heart. Truth should never be something which is wooden and dry and dull and distant. It should be something which is precious and valued and uh, appreciated. And Paul's saying to Titus, he's saying, oh, what I'm saying to you, what I've been writing about in this letter is trustworthy and it's true. I mean, you see, it in, there's four little, three little incidents he talks about here and these incidents are 
or these sections are in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then chapter 2, 11 down to verse 14, and then chapter 3, verses 4 down to verse 7. And in those three little sections in the book of Titus, you have the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel's right there. It's right before you. But that gospel and those truths which are spoken about here uh, need to be known in life and lived out. Uh, I recently um, asked or asked and purchased some uh, bookmarks from the Reform Bookshop in Sydney. And one had a beautiful quote on it from John Calvin that said, Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. So doctrine isn't something to be simply seen on the page, but just to be lived out in your life. That's what Paul is encouraging Titus to know and to emphasise in the Cretan church. I think the question that arises in regard to this passage is that how do we get from verse 11 of chapter 2, which Coy started off uh, explaining to us and uh, sharing with us, where it says, for the grace of God has appeared. How do we get from that down to the end of verse 14, where it says that we are people of his own position who are now zealous for good works? How do we get to the point where it says there in um in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. How do we get from the grace of Jesus being evidence in his life and in his work of Calvary on the cross, how do we get from that to the fact of actually doing good works ourselves? What's the link? What actually motivates us? What gets us going? Well, Stuart Briscoe says he calls it the ethics of gratitude. It's seeing that we don't deserve any credit for coming to a relationship with Jesus. We don't deserve any credit for having his life or having an improved character. We have no credits when it comes to actually appearing before an old holy God when we are sinful at heart. Let me explain it another way. To put it another way, when we are deeply moved by the unmerited favour, goodness and love and kindness of God, we will have borne in our hearts an overwhelming sense of gratitude and we want, we will want to live a Christ-like life out of gratitude, out of appreciation of just how great the work of Jesus has been on our behalf. He's done something we could never, never have done for ourselves. So, we swell with gratitude and therefore we want to live for Christ. We want to do good because Jesus has done good to us when we didn't deserve it. So it's the grace of God which motivates us and gets us from actually seeing the grace of God in person, the person of Jesus, to the point where we want to outwork that now. So if grace is known Grace now wants to be shown to other people out of gratitude for God. Dane Ortland, if you haven't read any of his books, you should get hold of them. He says that uh, in his book, Surprised by Jesus, 
Christian discipleship is not the process of getting in by grace and then becoming less and less dependent on that grace. It is rather becoming more dependent on grace. So in order to live the Christian life, to live out the life of Christ, to make a difference in the world, we need to know the grace of God. Uh, Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he said to them, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you go to chapter 9 and verse 8, he said to them, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So it's the grace of God which is the key, which is the trigger, which is the motivation for us keeping going in doing good. As a former pastor, um, I would often ask new people that came along to the church and had been along for a number of weeks uh, to inquire as to how they were going and how they were finding sitting under the preach word. Was it doing them any good? You know, Were they benefiting by it, profiting by it? And the greatest thrill was to actually hear people come back People who'd actually been away in other denominations and exposed to Arminianism, that is man-centred preaching and man-centred teaching, to hear them say, ah, I've discovered the grace of God. That uh, was just most encouraging to hear. In other words, what they were saying, I've discovered my unworthiness uh, to actually know Jesus and I've seen Jesus in what he's done on the cross. I've seen him showing his undeserved grace to me, and I've seen him removing my unworthiness and making me worthy of knowing God and enjoying God's presence. Paul was the same way. He said the life, his life was transformed beautifully by Christ, and he came to the point, he said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ. That's what my life is now about, living for Christ. So here he is saying something of the same thing to, to Titus and encouraging Titus. But I wonder tonight, this afternoon whether you can remember a time when the truth of God's grace particularly touched you. You were reading something. You were reading the Bible or you are reading something on the book or you were singing the hymn Amazing Grace and suddenly the Spirit of God has just brought in mind the wonder, the magnificent the truth of God's grace. I would say to my congregation, I said, we are a mob of Tom, Dicks and Harrys and Susies and so forth and here we are in the church, we're a motley bunch what are we doing in the church? Well, we're here because God has been gracious towards us and worked his saving grace within our lives. That's true of you tonight, is it? That you're here because somewhere along the way the Lord has taken hold of you, rescued you, changed you, transformed you, and brought you to know himself. May your prayer be, Lord, show me more and more of your grace. Well, as we mentioned, there are three tightly packed parcels of gospel truth uh, here in the book of Titus. And uh, what we're looking at to this afternoon follows on from the third of those packages. 
And when you look at all those, those three packages in chapter 1, chapter 2, and then chapter 3, you see wonderful truths, including the doctrine of election, of eternal life, of Christ's appearance, of salvation, redemption, purification, God's kindness, spiritual regeneration, spiritual renewal, justification, heirship, and hope of Christ's return. Now that has all been bundled up by the Lord. It's a bundle of truth which he's actually brought to you and given to you. You are now part of that. That the Lord has graced you with those truths. It should set our hearts alight with delight at what the Lord has brought to us. It should encourage us to actually live lives which are pleasing to God. I mean, let me just take one of those truths for a moment. The one that is mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 3. It says to us there, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by his grace. It means that people that were unrighteous, people like us that were unrighteous, are now righteous and we have right standing with God. It means that we become people who have been acquitted, we're people who have been accredited, people that have been approved, and now people that have been accepted by God. That Jesus acquitted us of our sin because he's made atonement for all our sin, and we are now credited with the righteousness of Christ. It's what they call imputed righteousness. So the righteousness which is Jesus is imputed or put to you, to your accounts. How good is that? good. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, think of it this, think of it another way. That God's justifying grace results in a change of garments. He takes our dirty, sinful garment and gives us his beautiful, clean, righteous garment. Now, all that was conceived by God. He's the instigator of his salvation. He's the giver of our salvation. So our salvation starts with God and a result of God's action and God's working. I was reading a little bit of Dan Ortland and some of, one of his books we use uh, just in a relational situation with another guy here at City on the Hill. And Ortland says, he says, on the cross, the one person who ever truly qualified, that was Jesus, allowed himself to be disqualified with our sin so that you and I, naturally disqualified, can qualify, free of charge, to be in God's presence. Isn't that good? Oh, some of you don't think it's good. It's great. This is a great truth. And this is what is exciting Paul and what he's seeking to relay to, to the matter of uh, of. Titus in his pastoral ministry. And notice what he says there in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. All this I'm saying to you is trustworthy, and I want you to insist upon these things. And that little word insist is, is such an important word. It means affirm constantly and affirm confidently. And when he talks about these things, it's all the things that he's mentioned previously in the letter. He's saying... Keep these things to the forefront. Keep the gospel to the forefront of your thinking. It's a little word which uh, has uh, 
an intensification note to it. In other words, insist. It means stress. It means highlight. It means value. It means keep before you. It means affirm it. Speak confidently about it. Lay great weight on the fact of the gospel and what it is. Now, that was in marked contrast to the heretical teachers, which were um, circling the church and were actually causing the the Christians uh, in Crete to um, be distracted. Those heretical teachers were those who couldn't be confident and couldn't be certain of their teachings, but we can. That's what Paul's saying to us. We can be confident. It's trustworthy truth. So my encouragement tonight would be to do, to do a Melissa Wu. Melissa Wu was a diver. She is a diver. Uh, She's been in four Olympic Games and she's been in numerous Commonwealth Games. And she's a pint-sized little girl, a little bit bit over five foot high, about 46 kilogram. She's about 30 years of age now. She's been around for many, many years. But she gets up on the high platform and (laughs) she dives. If it was me, you'd have to push. But she, of her own volition, dives. But it's not just the length of the dive from the top of the platform to the surface of the water. It's how deep she goes under the water. And Paul is saying to saying to Titus, and God is saying to us, I want you to dive deep into the word. I want you to dive deep into doctrine. I want you to delve into doctrine, to the doctrines of the cross. I want you to appreciate um, what I've been writing about to you Uh, to you, uh, Titus, in this letter. And God is saying he wants us to appreciate the nature and the truths of the gospel. He wants us not to be content with what we currently know. He wants us to dive deeper into the truth. Now, you could go to Ridley College and do that. You could do a subject on theology. But if you can't do that because time doesn't permit or money doesn't permit, you can at least go to a bookshop and you could buy uh, R.C. Sproul's easily read book called Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Or you could purchase Montgomery Boyce's Fundamentals for the Christian Faith. Or you could buy Bruce Milne's Know the Truth. A guy came to me after the service this morning and he says, I've got all three. <laughs> I said, great. I said, now buy some extra copies and pass them out to others. Such is the nature of those books. You will not be disappointed in those books. Put them on your shelf and they'll be a valuable asset. But not everybody actually uh, warms to the matter of doctrine. I remember a a lady, I'll call her Dottie, and we decided to do a mission. It was a fortnight mission, an outreach in... uh, in a brand new suburb in the outskirts of uh, Queensland. And uh, Dottie came along with her husband and Dottie got her shirt in a knot. Uh, Dottie didn't agree with what something the, uh, the speaker said and she didn't storm out, but she was, she was pretty outspoken at the end. She'd have never coming back. But, oh, okay. So I thought, well, the thing to do was to go and visit her. So I went and visited her the next day. And I shared about the speaker 
his love for the Lord and his love of the gospel and his loving to share the gospel and his delight when he saw people actually have transformed lives when they, under the sound of the gospel, were saved from, from sin and death. And I'm talking this way to her, and then she says to me, she said, oh, you don't really have to believe in doctrine to be a Christian. And I sat back in my chair, oh, wow, you don't believe in the doctrine and the truth of salvation. The truth of what Paul is talking to Titus about, he says we need to insist upon these doctrines. If, if the truth of salvation has actually saved you and transformed you and brought you into relationship with Jesus, it's worth emphasising, isn't it? It's worth owning, it's worth speaking about, it's worth exploring and going more deeply in our understanding with. So God wants, um, he wants his truth, um, he wants his gospel to be part of our DNA as Christians. These things, he says, these things are the roots in which your knowing Christ is all about. These truths, these things are the things that give you delight. These are the things that give you joy. But he's also saying to die, these are the things that motivate you. As you see them and catch a light to the truths of God's word, you get motive and say, oh, this is worth telling to somebody else. The greatest good you can do, says we should be zealous for good works, the greatest good to you, you can do is talk to somebody about Jesus, of how he's transformed and changed your life. So that's why he's saying to Titus, insist upon these things. He's saying to him, right belief results in right action, in doing deeds to meet others' needs. Chuck Swindles uh, says, a Christian makes the unseen world visible when sound doctrine and good deeds work together, when faith prompts action, when grace received becomes grace given away. So what are the good deeds that we can do? He says, devote yourselves to good deeds. He says, be careful to devote yourselves to good deeds. What are those good deeds? Well, it is obeying the rules and authorities. It's not slandering people. It's being, pe being peaceable in sticky situations with your neighbours. It's being mindful and considerate of others. It's volunteering for charitable service. It's giving as much as you possibly can to people in need. These are good works, but it's the outworking of the life which Christ has given you. Because he has shown you good, you want to do good. And he's saying, Paul is saying to Titus, you, you insist upon these things, insist upon truth as you're moving around and talking to people and as you're teaching uh, Christians in the church. Insist upon these things. But may it result in people getting out there and doing good. Well, moving on in this section of Scripture, we find something else in verse 9, which is by way of warning. Keep from emphasising foolish, distracting side issues. What Paul calls us here um, to do is to practise the matter of avoidance. He says, 
There are things you need to watch out for and avoid lest they detract from you knowing and valuing and experiencing God's grace and uh, appreciating the truths of the gospel. Be watchful, be on your guard against divisive issues. Titus was faced um, with uh, Cretans who were false, shameful, legalistic teachers who lived among the immoral populace of Crete and they were bent. They were bent on taking and luring Christians away from the truth so that they lost their desire to make Jesus known. You see that in chapter 1, verses 10 and 16, and especially in verse 14. There were some people who wanted to bring people out of grace and back under law through proposing additions to the gospel. It's a bit like we've actually heard um, in Christian, Christian circles in uh, over the last decades where people say, oh, unless you speak in tongues, unless you have this additional point to your life, you're not a Christian. That's an addition to, gospel, to the gospel. In the same way, circumcision was... Uh, propagated as an addition to the gospel. And the book of Galatians is all about uh, showing us that, no, that's not necessary to know Christ. Jesus is the one who's done the completed work at Calvary and we need to trust him for that. But there are those that are going to come and are going to try and abuse grace and Paul is saying, avoid them, steer clear of these false teachers, avoid their teachings like the plague. He said, what they are proposing is unprofitable and useless, he says in verse 9. And that's quite the opposite of what you read back in verse 8, about things which are excellent and profitable. So we are to be people who are different, and Christ makes us different, and we are saved to make a difference. So we must be careful in doing that, though. We must be careful not simply to be different for the sake of being different. Uh, too many Christians like to practice a, a little bit of spiritual one-upmanship, where they have some insight, or they have some belief, or they have some interpretation which is different or better than somebody else. Don't be different for the sake of being different. Don't be loud and proud about your differences. That's the way the world works. That's what the world loves. They love to weaponize the sound of their own voice and their own opinion. You listen to the talkback shows. It's clearly in evidence. People are concluding today that their voice or their say or their idea or their belief is their truth. That's my truth. What I say is truth. That's what they're believing. And Paul is saying to Titus here, no, it is God's truth which must be upheld and known and lived by. Say no to ungodly and worldly, worldly passions and bents. We've got an opponent, we've got a devil who's ever seeking to actually, in his own sneaky, shifty way, shift us away from the truth, shift us away from the gospel. And one of the things he does, he gets the church bogged down in issues, little church cultural issues, often unwritten laws. I've been part of business meetings where Christians have spent uh, amounts of time 
debating matters of worship centre layouts, seating layouts, hymns versus choruses, modern verse, modern versus traditional, the uses of musical instruments, Bible translations, end time signs, leadership makeups, and so I could go on. We don't have what uh, Paul addresses here, the matter of um, quarrels and dissensions and controversies and genealogies and things like that, but we do have things that distract us and take us away from our clear focus on the gospel. We need to stay reliable and stay true to what God has given us in his gospel. It's so easy for us to be taken away and carried away by divergences. I mean, that's what happened with the Cretan church. Um, the devil was using false teachers to attack the gospel truth and attack Christians and lead them astray. And, and Titus had his hands full because uh, elsewhere it talks about they, they came with endless genealogies. These teachers, these so-called teachers, they were people who were taking some of the genealogies of the Old Testament and concluding they weren't complete. They said, oh, there's cracks in the genealogy. They said, uh, there's cracks here and there's cracks there and we need to fill the cracks in. So what did they do? They built in myths. They brought myths into the genealogies to fill in the cracks. And then they debated it. Then they discussed it. They talked about it and they wasted time on trying to sort it all out. And Paul's saying to Titus, don't get caught up in that. But beware, be on your guard because there's going to be some new fads and there's going to be some new controversies and there's going to be some new emphases that are going to hit the Christian church in days to come. I don't know what they are, but they're sure to come because we've had them before. And things come and things go. And Paul says those things that are going to arise will often be foolish, pointless, profitless and fruitless. He uses two words. He says they're profitless. They really don't promote spiritual growth. He says they're fruitless because they really don't result in people's lives being transformed and people coming to know Jesus. So you can discuss and be caught up in discussing matters of church culture and what it is to be prim and proper in the uh, church of God and, and miss and really miss the main point of what he wants us to be about. The main thing is that Jesus has appeared. He's appeared to die and to die for our salvation. Focus on that. As a young Christian, the main instruction I had in being a disciple of Christ was on the second coming and all the signs of the times, and the magogs and the gogs of the world, whether it was Russia or China, and uh, all manner of stuff. It was most confusing and uh, in most, most intriguing but it didn't help my spiritual growth. So we need to be aware that we don't start going down particular lines and particular emphases where we lose sight of Jesus and the whole point of his appearing. That he came for our salvation. And as a result of that, we should be wanting to make him known. The third thing to actually see uh, is what we find in verses 10 and 11, and I want to mention it to you positively. Once again, it's something that uh, we need to stick at doing and stick at emphasising in the Christian church. And I've entitled it, Keep Praying for Our Pastors to Have Tender Hearts and Tough Hides. 
What does it say to us there in um, 9 and 10? But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and so forth. As for a person who stirs up division and warn, warn him once and then twice and have nothing to do with him, with that person. He's telling us here that uh, there's a tough side to ministry. Wherever there's grace, as we've said, grace will seek to be abused. But sometimes in the abuse of grace, there's people that actually come into the church with their own agendas, with their own persuasions, with their own desire to change people and influence people. And that's when grace needs to be tough. In verse 10, Paul is speaking to Titus about tough grace. He's saying that grace needs to be strong. Grace needs to have its limits. Grace needs to deal with dodgy, divisive people because there are those who actually want to lure people away. I mean, one of the things I've just heard about um, in, in churches just recently is we have these, these tele-evangelists. Uh, we have these spiritual um, teachers uh, on television and people get carried away and follow those teachers. They become their spiritual heroes. But then what happens is they, they hear their spiritual hero and then they come along and they put their put the grid of the preaching which is in the local church through what they think or what they expect. In other words, what is, what is called preaching appreciation levels. They want the preacher to align with their internet or TV spiritual hero. Can you see how that can actually lead to criticism very easily in the congregation? And if you get that, and if that begins to fester and be fostered in the congregation, it undermines the pastor and it discredits the pastor and it affects the church. We need to be on our guard. So pastors are called to preserve the purity of the church and the well-being of the church. God has given us pastors. He's given us two good pastors here that help us do that. But the features that they need are a tender heart and a tough hide. The tender heart bit is expressed in warn him once, warn him twice. Often a pastor will be called upon to actually address certain issues with certain people or to address certain individuals that are causing division or promoting error along the way. And a pastor must always think, ah, oh, he must always have a hope in, in his addressing, that they will change, that they'll turn away from their error and they'll, they, they'll change, that they'll repent. But in addressing, it's no easy task. There's an expenditure of emotional energy and there's a degree of high risk in terms of reaction that comes in reproving somebody or in disciplining somebody. And in that, there's a necessity of a right spirit where one is being not being self-righteous, but one is being conscientious, one is being gracious, one is being humble, one is being fair-minded, one is being loving, and one is being kind-hearted. In other words, they reprove with compassion, with a tender heart. So confronting area in the love of God is a tough gig. 
I always felt a, a reluctance to do so, and I had to do so on numerous occasions. So pray for our pastors. Pray that they'll keep a tender heart in difficult situations. But then also pray that they might have a tough hide. Because things can go so far and there can be such an influence that it becomes terribly disruptive. And God has given us pastors to protect the flock from heresy and from error. Carrying out that task is not easy. What does it say to us here? As for a person who stirs up division and warn, warn him once, then warn him twice and have nothing more to do with him. So we need to pray for our pastors that they are strong, that they know, they know strength in God's grace and that they're able to make hard decisions and tackle situations which require discipline. I remember this one guy coming into the Altana church where I was pastoring and uh, he came with good credentials, with a good background in employment and with a history of going to various churches. Um, but then I discovered he was involved in church hopping. He'd been from this church to that church to some other church and it, the little alarm bells went off in the back of my mind, but I left of that. It's just great to have uh, him and his wife and, and children coming along to the church. But then he began to actually command the attention of people in the congregation. He insisted the King James was the, ver the version. That uh, that was the version that Paul used, which is not true, and therefore that's the version that should be used in the co in the congregation. And then he began telling us about spouting forth on, on his theology and what he knew in theology. And I discovered that in the impressions that he was making upon people, he was actually, in fact, telling lies, lots of lies. He told lies to me, told lies to members of the congregation, he told lies to his own wife, um, even to the point of where he lived and where he'd been and what he was doing and what he was about. His life was a living lie. And there he's making, he's moving amongst the congregation, making an impression and seeking to attract attention and seeking to have an influence. And I said to my fellow leaders, this is what's going on. We need to take action. You need to be in the know and you need to be, back, be at my back. And so I approached him and said, I'm going to ask you to leave the church. What you're about, what you're doing is dishonest and not glorifying to God and not helpful to God's people and it's affecting the congregation. The Song of Solomon says in chapter 2 and verse 15, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. Well, sometimes it's a tough call. And it takes a tough hide to actually step into those situations and address people and ask them to do something, which they are reluctant to do. And sometimes there's all kinds of flack that comes back. One must be prepared for that as well. So while Paul talks to Titus about the truth of the gospel and the trustworthiness of great and beautiful salvation doctrines, He's also saying, you've got to be on your guard. You've got to be careful. You've got to retain the truth by not standing for error and for wrong. If error arises, stomp it out. Because God's glory is at stake and God's people's well-being is at stake. So back to the start of the series when uh, uh, Coy headed us off in 
from verse 11 of chapter 2. The wonderful thing about Jesus is his appearance, is his incarnation, his miraculous incarnation that he came to have. God sent his son. And we can appreciate that as his son came, he was the exact representation of God's being and character. But what was true of God was there in evidence to be seen in the way Jesus lived and in what Jesus did. Thank God for that appearance. Thank God it was nothing like Robert D. Costello, who promised to be there and didn't turn up. Jesus has turned up. Isn't that good? And he's made a world of difference in history. And he continues to make a world of difference in history by seeing people saved and transformed by the good news of his gospel. Well, Paul points out to Titus, there's a phenomenal amount of good that God has done and a phenomenal amount of truth that he's given to us. Keep insisting on it. Keep emphasising it. Keep cherishing it. And don't let other things get in the way, like subjects and conspiracies and speculations, like uh, COVID conspiracies. Moving about in country churches in recent months, being amazed at how many Christians have got caught up in cosmic, uh, not cosmic, in COVID conspiracies. And they've chased it all over the internet and speakers and contributors all around the world. What a waste of time. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about concentrate on what is trustworthy, what is real, and what has been realised in our lives. Brian Chappell says in a foreword of one of Auckland's books, he says, we need our hearts filled with high-octane grace that takes our conscience by the scruff of the neck and breathes new life into us with a pardon so scandalous that we cannot help but be changed. We need to grasp the gospel and continue to grasp it and insist upon its importance, that it is the power of God for salvation because it works, it changes lives. So keep focusing on Christ's blood-bought gospel of grace. For that, what will actually bring zeal and devotion to good works into your life out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. May the Lord rev you up. May the Lord cause your life to zing with zeal for him. God bless you. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has good things to say, things which energise us, which excite us, which move us, which bring greater and stronger affection to you, our Lord and our Saviour. But thank you too for the hard things you say to us, for the strong things, because, Father, you're concerned for truth and you're concerned for when error gets in the way or when error distracts or takes us away from the main event or the main things. So, Father, cause us to be strong in grace. Cause us to delight in your grace and cause us to be amazed by the great grace you've shown us in your dear Son. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.